Hello, New Hampshire. Welcome to the inaugural edition of the New Hampshire Journal podcast brought to you by the Josiah Bartlett Center for Public Policy. Drew Klein is the president of the Josiah Bartlett Center. I'm with New Hampshire Journal. Some of you may know that I dabbled a bit in radio in the past. Hello, Boston. I am Michael Graham. Uh, But of course, I can't even begin to compare with Drew Klein's radio experience. Welcome back to Suburban Underground. We are your hosts, Steve and Drew. Drew, you are rocking it at Suburban Underground. It is a great show. Thanks. Um, For those who don't know, which is... 99.9% 99.9% Everybody, pretty much, of the yeah. population of New Hampshire. Yeah, so I have for about four years, I've been doing an alternative music uh, radio show in my local radio station. And um, I don't know if you can say this, but uh, I'm a, an award-winning broadcaster. <laughs> no, I've never been an award-winning broadcaster <laughs> in my entire life. And uh, because of, of Drew's background, today's podcast is entirely alt music from the 80s, the tubes, completion black, backwards principle, hit it. No. So why don't you tell everyone, Drew, why we've decided here two weeks before the election to do this podcast? <laughs> well, um, so Michael Graham and I, you dear listeners, have been talking off and on for a long time about wanting to do a podcast. And last week, Jack Heath, uh, the longtime seven-year host at WGIR AM's morning show, um, left and sought other opportunities. And we felt like that created kind of a big gap, a big media hole. In New Hampshire. Like, I don't know about you. I'm annoyed because I every yeah. morning there would be somebody, you know, that, talking that I could quite frankly steal a story from. Because it's <laughs> well, where do you get local where do you get local news? You well, know? exactly. And but not just local news. You know, one of the great things about radio and now podcasts is that you can just get public figures, public officials, interesting people on to talk about topics of the day, and they just talk. You have a conversation. It's fun. Yeah. And you learn a lot from just listening to people talk for five or 10 minutes, as opposed to reading, you know, a very brief clip in uh, the newspaper or seeing a very short hit on a TV. So it's a great format. And the podcast gives us the opportunity to have guests on and make it available for people to listen to during their drive if they're not going to catch Jack anymore exactly. or whenever they want to. Yeah. So we just thought it'd be a, a great opportunity to present some local content in the new hampshire news market that is missing and i miss jack and and it's really annoying that this whatever's going on with iheart radio is happening two weeks before the election so we're going to take you guys through the election that we'll, we'll, we'll go through the election week and we're going to try to do the kind of stuff that jack used to do so for example coming up you'll be hearing tom cotton i caught up with him on sunday at an event for matt mowers and so we're going to have the kind of conversation that they used to have because we need to talk about this. There's so much going on. But not just uh, horse race politics, Drew. There's real policy politics going on, particularly when it comes to the fight between New Hampshire and Massachusetts. And finally, after many weeks of urging from New Hampshire Journal, Drew, Governor Sununu has found his inner Mel. His inner Governor Mel is coming out. Oh, yeah. We need we need more Governor Mel. Yeah. <laughs> channel honestly um so for those of you who might have just been casually following this massachusetts for years has taxed new hampshire residents who work in mass if you travel down to massachusetts commute there you do work in an office there you have to pay massachusetts income tax for the days that you're there but with covid settling in in the spring they proposed a rule which they just recently finalized that said if you normally commute to mass and you work here 
but you're staying home because Massachusetts has these travel restrictions and you're being a good citizen and not um, trying not to spread COVID, we will tax you. We're going to apply the Massachusetts income tax to all of your work. So they are reaching across the border and applying the Massachusetts income tax to New Hampshire residents who are working in New Hampshire and never setting foot in Massachusetts. And that is incredibly offensive to the Constitution <laughs> and to New Hampshire and our live free or die ethos and our <clears throat> tax-free ethos. So um, kudos to the governor yep. for doing a legal challenge to that. What's interesting to me is that I've read in New Hampshire Journal and in some other sources that uh, some lawyers are looking at this and saying, oh, New Hampshire doesn't have a, have a case here. And I find that perplexing. I understand the issue about legal standing. Maybe New Hampshire doesn't have legal standing. But it strikes me as odd that you could say the one state has the legal right to reach across the border, to change its, its rules, administrative rules in its own state, to apply to people who live and work outside of that state just by the fact that their employer has a connection to mass. They no longer personally have that connection because they're not working in mass, but because their employer does, you can tax them. I think that's a really interesting legal argument. And um, I certainly hope New Hampshire prevails. Well, I think I, first of all, I hate this. I, you know, I was a CBS news contributor for a couple of years, largely from in Boston and here in New Hampshire. And I had to pay New York tax. And I had never drew been in the studio. I, I was, I was here. I was literally going to like the WBZ in Boston or, or to St. Anselm to the, you know, the remote hookup. And I wasn't even in the same state and they were taxing me. So I completely hate this. Um, I, the, the concern that I've heard, I've talked to some sources who are close to this uh, early on and their concern is the issue of cross border taxing is in flux. As you know, we just had the Wayfair case and the Josiah Bartlett Center has been very outspoken about calling for the leaders in New Hampshire to aggressively fight to draw a line at the state line and stop attempts to collect sales taxes. Wayfair was the ruling that said you states can now start, you know, ordering you to pay sales tax, you know, on internet purchases that they can now get in this fight. And, uh, and you want them to, to fight that fight uh, vociferously. And there's some lawyers who are concerned that if you don't have a good case and you're trying to defend these between 80 and 100,000 commuters who are impacted by Massachusetts decision, that you could end up having a case where you get a ruling that in the long term undermines the ability of low tax and no tax states to defend themselves from high tax states like Massachusetts, New York, and California trying to reach, reach across their border. And that definitely makes me nervous. Yeah. Well, it makes me nervous too. It's a bit of a legal gray area. I mean, I think the, the legal experts you and I both talked to say it's not a slam dunk for New Hampshire to win this case, but it's not a slam dunk to lose it either. So it is a bit of a gray area. And um, I do think the new, the, Look, the attorney general is a fantastic lawyer, and I think he's going to put together a very strong case. Um, he put together about the strongest case you could put together for Wayfair, and um, I think they're going to do a strong one. We'll see. Um, today, they're announcing their case, and we get to see it. So uh, maybe we can talk about it tomorrow and see what yeah. it looks like. We will definitely follow up, and obviously we'll be writing about New Hampshire Journal. Uh, and shameless plug here, if you don't get our newsletter, you should definitely go to nhjournal.com or sign up for the newsletter. This will pop up in your email every morning. But um, 
I want to ask you a political question, and I know you don't do partisan politics, but I'm at, at the Josiah Bartlett Center, but I'm asking about broadly, you know, how politics sure. works. Yeah. I was stunned when we first asked uh, Governor Sununu about this uh, right after the news broke and the union leader, kudos to them for breaking the story. He literally joked about it. He's like, I don't know if we can do anything. Just, just, just need to move to New Hampshire. That's the solution. You know? And I was like, what? <laughs> and then finally kind of the things got shaken up and then we had some, you know, some, some action, a few press releases, and then that's it. I'm surprised. Like if I was running for any state office, state ledge, state, particularly executive counselor, I'd be holding press releases at the border or press events at the border. I'd, my mail will be full of Massachusetts is stealing your money and I'm going to stop them. I, this is such a low impact in the political arena a topic, and I, I don't understand why. Well, it's an easy one. I mean, look, I, I think the governor's reaction, um, just to defend the governor a little bit there, I, I think was uh, caught off guard, but also um, – there seemed to be, or at least there was the impression, given that they were um, already early on inquiring across the border and, and trying to do stuff quietly. So I'm not sure that that there was this sense of making a big deal out of it um, publicly. But I think you and I are totally on the same page about the politics. In fact, there's just a Broadway Center. We wrote about that um, that very week. And uh, it's one of our most popular essays we wrote this year. Um, if you'll recall, we said, look, every now and then you have to punch Massachusetts in the face. Exactly. And, and we got a lot of good attention for that one. And, and, and the point was, you know, every now and then you have to do like Mel Thompson and take a firm stand and show Massachusetts that um, you're not going to be pushed around because Massachusetts has a long decades long history of trying to tax Granite Staters mm -hmm. and, um, and even trying to go across the border into New Hampshire to tax Massachusetts residents. So um, we fought them um, repeatedly on this issue and it's never a loser politically to fight them on this <laughs> i think you're right and i don't understand why there's not more political comment one last thing on this before we uh, go to another topic my favorite comment is from grover norquist who's with americans for tax reform who's also very involved here in uh, new hampshire politics he says massachusetts is trying to use the east germany model of taxation there is no escape <laughs> as a former <laughs> mass resident myself for the quote Absolutely. Um, so uh, since we're talking about math and numbers, could we talk a little bit about COVID numbers and the COVID media oh, please, coverage? So yeah, let me, let me give you is... let me give you a number to start and then I will I will hand it okay. over to you. Uh, I, I watched the news, not to name any particular TV stations, but it's a local TV station based in Manchester. One of the I don't want to name which one. Uh, and the media uh, it's coverage probably similar to one of the newspapers um, that's located outside of Manchester <laughs> that keeps um, doing frustrating coverage on this, but we won't name names. The, me the message was, oh, my God, look at all these, quote, cases, which, yep. as we've written they're many cases. times, they're not cases. People hear cases and they think you've got a case of the measles, case of the mumps, case of the Mondays. No, they're not cases. They're positive test results. And so, oh, my gosh, look at these huge test results. Here are the actual numbers. Last week. Over seven days, the state of New Hampshire did 57,641 tests, which is a phenomenal yep. number. Yep. There were 567 positives. That's a rate of 0.85% positive rate. That is not high. And while there are, you know, tragically deaths uh, related to COVID, virtually all of them, more than 80%, are people in assisted uh, in long term uh, care facilities, 
people in the broad population are not being hospitalized for this. Hospitalization rate is astonishingly low. It rarely exceeds more than 20 people. Usually it's in the teens. And nobody, nobody under the age of 18 has been hospitalized for COVID since school reopened. Not a single student has been sick enough to have to go to a hospital from COVID since we had school come back. Those are the facts. Drew Klein, take it away. <laughs> um, so you and I have ranted off air about this a lot. I have lots of pet peeves about the coverage. First being, it's not a case. It is an infection or a, um, or a positive test rule. I, I get it why they call it cases, um, but case scares people because case implies that you are sick and you can get the coronavirus and never be sick. So the positive test result is not people who are sick, it is people who have gotten the virus. And that's a huge distinction. So what we're seeing is um, lately, we've seen since uh, late August, since the last week of August, we've seen a very large increase in positive test results. Without naming names, there are some reporters out there who keep reporting this giant increase in test results as if we have this huge surge of cases. We do have some increase in community spread that's evident in the numbers. What almost no one reports is that since late July, early August, we have had a tripling of our testing in New Hampshire. We went to just under 3,000 tests per day on average to um, close to 10,000 tests per day on average. So we are we have more than tripled our testing. And so we're finding a lot more infections that accounts for a huge number of the positive increases. It doesn't count for all of them. People are um, letting down their guard a little more. That's been in the news. And I think that's true to some extent. People are getting together the, um, a little more. So you're seeing some clusters at UNH. We had a few clusters. Um, you're seeing a few clusters at uh, restaurants and hockey, obviously youth sports has created some clusters. So we're seeing an increase in clusters. We're seeing a little bit of increase in community spread. Um, so we're getting a lot more positive test results, but the media coverage has not been consistent or even very good in pointing out that we've tripled our testing <laughs> in the last <laughs> month. So you're going to see a lot more positive tests. And that's just really frustrating because I've actually seen the word alarming right. in these stories. Focus not on anything but the positive tests. The hospitalizations have gone up slightly and then kind of gone, gone back down a bit. Um, we are rarely more than 20 uh, hospitals, active hospitalizations at any one time. The ICU hospitalizations, which is what you're really concerned about, right. those are the serious hardcore cases of these, the people who might be intubated. They're not going up in New Hampshire. So we're not seeing a big increase in those. We have seen a big increase in September in deaths. So September looks like we, after seeing a, like, I think it was 95% decline in deaths through September. In October, the deaths have started to go back up again. It looks like we're going to um, have our highest death rate since uh, July. Mm. But there are 100% of deaths in September and October have been over 60. Yep. All of them in September were in long-term care facilities. I haven't checked to, to make sure that all in October are, but I think most of them are. So again, you're seeing a large 
number of people being infected who are younger, healthier, they're not getting sick, and they're not dying. And Still I just want to make a point. Of, I, I, I want to make a point about the deaths too, because sometimes when you talk, when when I talk about my people, I get a sense think that I'm dismissing the deaths as not significant. Of course, they are significant. Every life lost is significant. Four hundred sixty-seven people as of Sunday, as of yesterday, you know, killed by COVID. That's a big deal. But my point is that when it's almost exclusively people who are in long-term care facilities, they are not dying because of the public policy decisions that are being made for the broad public, letting kids go back to school. And I asked Dr. Chan this question at a press conference recently, and he confirmed it. Letting kids go back, go back to school has shown no connection whatsoever to fatalities. It's because yeah, they're they're living in their own to to use the sports thing with the with the playoffs and everything. They're in a bubble. They're in the long term care facility bubble, and there's clearly a problem in that bubble, and it's and it's tragic. But uh, letting people go back to work, letting people go back to school, is not getting people killed. It is not significantly uh, impacting even the rate that people are uh, testing positive. Uh, we're you know when you're at point eight five percent. Uh, you're in a very good place when uh, nobody in the broad public is going to the hospital or dying. That's that's about as good as you can hope for in a pandemic. Well, I wouldn't say nobody in the broad public is going to the hospital. We I think we've seen a few hospitalizations that are um, that are community spread, but um, but the deaths have almost exclusively been uh, in long term care facilities, over eighty one percent. So, you know, you're it's. It's frustrating in that the sense that the media seems to be um, still fixated on creating alarming pictures, and they actually use the word alarming in some of the reporting on this. And um, when in fact, it's it's not what I think you would really most people would term alarming. And I think you see this in the fact that people are going out and they're masking. People are being responsible. Um, you go to the grocery store, everybody's wearing a mask. You go to the, out to eat, everybody's wearing a mask. Um, but people are going out and doing these things and they don't seem alarmed. And so I don't think the public is really buying this sense that, well, the case has gone up, the testing has gone up, um, so therefore we should be terrified and stay home. And um, sometimes it feels like that's the way the reporting is focused and that's really frustrating. And sometimes I think people are being, you know, like we often are, conflicted. You know, we hate the national debt, but we want to spend more money. Uh, if you ask us, are you scared of COVID? We say, absolutely, it's terrible, it's awful. And then we go out and do what we we're going to do <laughs> anyway. And so I think think, think there's some of that uh, at play. Without a doubt, politics is still going strong in the era of COVID. And even though it's still 2020, not even close to 2024, some interesting visits in the Granite State of late, including Senator Tom Cotton, who was at an event on Sunday for Republican congressional candidate Matt Mowers. I caught up with him there. So we're talking to Senator Tom Cotton and Matt Mowers, Republican co- uh, candidate for Congress. Senator Cotton, coincidence that you're in Arkansas? A lot of states. You know, Christy Nome was just uh, uh, Nikki Haley was just here. I, I guess it's the weather. Is that right? Absolutely, it's the weather. It's the center of the political universe as well between the presidential race, Senate races, Matt and Steve's House races as well. Um, it's critical that we win all these races uh, if we want Republicans to be in charge in Washington. And the grant senators I talk to desperately want Republicans in charge because they don't want higher taxes. They don't want to throw in with Antifa against the police. 
they don't want to kowtow to China. They want Republicans to continue to stand up for their deepest aspirations and protect their interests. That's exactly what I'm trying to do, and I know what, that's what Matt and Steve will do as well. So uh, before I get to Matt here in just a second, uh, just some stuff that's in the news right now. Uh, Section 230, you said that it might be time when it comes to treating uh, the big tech companies like mere platforms, start treating like publishers. A lot of people who advance free speech kind of worried about that. Is it time to pull the plug on Section 230? Well, so just so your listeners understand, these big tech companies have unprecedented immunity from legal liability for what goes up on their platforms. Basic TV stations here in New Hampshire don't have that. Your newspapers don't have that. Magazines don't have that. They're responsible for what they uh, publish. Now, there's high bars for any legal liability, but they don't have absolute immunity from it. And I think a lot of conservatives and Republicans, whether it's in New Hampshire or Arkansas or anywhere else, feel that big tech has been suppressing conservative voices for a long time. But after what happened last week with the New York Post, one of America's largest and oldest, most venerable newspapers, being censored, Without conservatives being able to share the New York Post story, I think they feel like open war has been declared on conservatives. So my message for these big tech oligarchs is very simple. Winter is coming. Well, so what I'm worried about, Matt, is that all the stuff I call Ray Buckley and Steve Stepanek, they're going to come after me at New Hampshire Journal. So if you're on the House floor and Section 230 repeal comes up, have you thought about this? Do you know what you do? Yeah, well, here's the problem. You have a bunch of tech companies trying to have the best of both worlds right now. They want to claim they're a platform, yet they're trying to be judge and jury and try to, you know, declare what's fact and what's not. So my opinion on this, if they want to act like they're the New York Times, if they want to start determining what's news and what's not on their platform, then they should be regulated the same way the New York Times is. They shouldn't be getting some special giveaway right now where they can censor some voices and not others. They're trying to have the best of both ways right now. That's just not fair. And it's not the way the system was set up. So I also want to ask you about, and how this became an issue, I have no idea. But in New Hampshire, we're talking about eliminating the Electoral College. Now, Arkansas is a pretty small state. New Hampshire is a very small state. Two of your colleagues, Senators Shaheen and Hassan, both support repealing the Electoral College. Why would a small state want to make that change? Because the Democrats don't represent the heartland of the country. They are more focused on their coalition, which is heavily concentrated in the megacities of this country, rather than in smaller, more rural states like New Hampshire and Arkansas. Now, it's not really a question of how big you are in the Electoral College. It's a question of whether the state is competitive. We haven't had that many presidential visits in Arkansas lately because we're not that competitive as of late. However, it was just 20 years ago when George W. Bush made his very last stop of the campaign in 2000 in Arkansas, because we were competitive. The same thing is true here in New Hampshire. You may only have four electoral votes, but those four electoral votes, which are at play right now, could be the deciding votes in the Electoral College. If we eliminate the Electoral College, our president will be determined largely by about a dozen megacities across the country. Now, those cities are important, and they play their role in our politics, and their votes should count as well, but the votes in the heartland, the votes in the rural parts of America should count too. Likewise, they support packing the Senate too by making Washington, D.C. a state adding two Democratic senators in perpetuity. That just goes to show you what the heart of the Democratic coalition wants and and how it excludes a lot of voices from rural America. You know, uh, changing the Electoral College is tough. It involves uh, the Constitution, but packing the Supreme Court is just House-Senate president. Uh, Where would uh, Matt Mowers be on packing the Supreme Court, and what's the status of that debate in your race? Look, I'm against it. I'm also against changing the Electoral College. I mean, Chris Pappas was asked about this in our first debate. And I was shocked. I was literally shocked. I was sitting there uh, at NPR studio, and Chris Pappas, 
actually said he was open to changing the Electoral College. And so I even said at the time, I said, I, I feel like I'm sitting across the virtual table from someone representing California or New York, not here in New Hampshire. Because the fact of the matter is that preserves our voice in the electoral process. Not only that, but if you get rid of the Electoral College, you know, Chris Pappas and his party are going to come for the First in the Nation primary next. They're going to come for our First in the Nation status. And so we need to stand strong. And this should be something that can unite Democrats and Republicans alike here in New Hampshire. This is just common sense. We should protect our voice in the political process nationally, defend the Electoral College, and then we can stand shoulder to shoulder as we protect the First in the Nation status as well. And I just want to say, Chris Pappas voted, along with every other Democrat in the House, save one, to make Washington, D.C. a state, to give the city of Washington the swamp as many senators as New Hampshire has. So he wants Washington, D.C., with all of its influence peddlers and all of its lobbyists and all of its unelected bureaucrats, to have the exact same voice in the United States Senate as New Hampshire has or Arkansas has or every other state. I just can't believe that a congressman from New Hampshire would vote to give up some of New Hampshire's voice in the Senate by making the swamp of unelected bureaucrats and influence peddlers a state and giving them two Democratic senators in perpetuity. So, Senator Cotton, I want to ask you about uh, somebody who's known here in New Hampshire, someone that, say, if you were a U.S. senator and you were thinking about running for president one day, this is just all a hypothetical, you would stop in and chat with, and that's Tom Rath, longtime Republican. He's endorsed Joe Biden, and he represents a group of Republicans who are just really unhappy with the president, et cetera. What do you, when you run into Republicans who are just like, dude, you know, I'm a Republican. I've always been a Republican. But I can't do this. What is your message to them? Well, I would ask them to consider the alternative with Joe Biden and the Democrats. I know Joe Biden has come off as a moderate in this campaign and he portrays himself as that. But his agenda is truly radical. And you can contrast that with the Republican agenda and especially the accomplishments of the last four years. I mean, just look what's about to happen in the days ahead. We're going to confirm Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. The president will have three nominees to the court that are going to help cement a center-right majority on the court. Look at the taxes that we cut that helped build the strongest economy we've had in decades, or protecting our border and protecting low-skilled or unskilled workers from the challenge of mass immigration, which is taking their jobs or driving down their wages. Look at where our military is compared to where it was after eight years under Barack Obama and Joe Biden. On all of those issues, Republicans are on the right side, they're on the popular side, and the president has helped deliver. I understand that some Republicans dislike the president's style or his manner, but I would ask them to look at what we've accomplished in four years, look at what we plan to do over the next four versus what Joe Biden and the Democrats want to do and kind of fundamentally altering the structure of American government. So I know Reagan Republicans. I know moderate squish Republicans. Love them. Not one of them. Love them. You know, I know libertarian, crazy people like me, Republicans. Now we've gone through this Trump thing where a guy who really was never really, he was, he was always Trump. He's just his own. Looking forward, what, what flavor, what would you say is going to kind of be the essence of what it means to be a Republican, do you think? Regardless of what happens November 3rd, whether President Trump wins or loses, what do you see as a path forward? Well, every president of both parties kind of creates his own coalition, and you never quite reassemble the same coalition. Hillary Clinton learned that the hard way in 2016 in, in the Democratic Party. But what President Trump did as a candidate in 2015 and 2016 is kind of recognize some of the critical issues about which voters care that the elites in Washington didn't care, sometimes in both parties. I think immigration is probably the best example of that. You know, one of my first acts in Congress is trying to fight to kill, which I did, the so-called Gang of Eight Immigration Bill of 2013, which would have more than doubled legal immigration. It would have granted a mass amnesty. It was wildly unpopular, but it was really popular in Washington among Republican and Democratic uh, establishment types alike. Uh, and 
you know, there were a lot of Republicans on that stage in 2016 who had supported that bill, and President Trump realized rightly that that just wasn't very popular among our voters or among the voters in the critical swing states in the Electoral College. Likewise on trade. For too long, the Republican Party just kind of said, well, anything with a free, the name free trade on it is a great thing. We should do it. And even if it helped promote higher economic growth, that economic growth wasn't really distributed in a fair and equitable manner across the country. That's why you've seen us lose so many manufacturing jobs in the heartland, why you see so much money flowing into Wall Street or to Silicon Valley or to Hollywood. So I think the Republican Party, as the party of working Americans, need to take stock of why that happened and also the successes we had, especially the economic successes before the pandemic knocked us all on our back uh, and helped rebuild the economy along those lines, focusing on the implications of trade and immigration and tax policy for working communities across the country. So you think working class populism is here to stay for a while? Well, I think there's um, a lot of a lot of working class Americans who didn't feel their government was responsive to them, whether they were a Democratic or Republican government in Washington, really back to the years of Ronald Reagan. Uh, Ronald Reagan focused a lot on that, those working class voters. That's one reason why he won such big landslides to include landslides in the heartland. Uh, and I think that's something that we Republicans need to be mindful of in the years ahead. So when you go door to door in this moment, you know, you've seen the numbers for Trump. According to the polls, he's, you know, down 10 here, down 11 here. What do normal, normal people, if you can call anyone that anymore, what do they say about the press? What are you hearing as you go door to door? Well, look, folks are with us on the issues. You know, people in New Hampshire do not want an income tax here in New Hampshire. They don't want a sales tax here in New Hampshire. They don't want what Chris Pappas is proposing, which is the largest tax hike in American history in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, this is the type of lunacy that's going on down in Washington, D.C. right now. They're talking about literally at a time when we're trying to build our economy back, proposing the largest tax hike in American history it would actually have the standard deduction that most middle income families use. It would eliminate the new child care tax credit. I mean, this is the stuff that Chris Pappas and his party's pushing for, let alone the fact that they're now trying to allow criminals to sue cops, which would make recruiting good police officers harder and would actually make it harder to keep good police officers in the force. I've talked to law enforcement. I mean, it's the reason I was endorsed by, you know, the two uh, police unions from Manchester, the largest city in the district, as well as Chris Pappas's hometown. Two unions that backed his campaign two years ago endorsed mine. You know why? Because our party stands for supporting law enforcement. And Chris Pappas has taken a position that's so radical and so extreme that even Maggie Hassan, Jean Shaheen, and leadership from the NAACP here in New Hampshire said it's too extreme. So they don't want the, the qualified music takeaway, got that, don't want taxes. Do they want Donald Trump, is what I was asking. Yeah, I think they're giving him a fair hearing. They're judging him on his record. They're judging him on his record. And then they're going to make an individual decision on every single race. Uh, because we're New Hampshire. We're an independent-minded state, and they're going to look at each race on the merits. And so I think there's a lot of people who are enthusiastic about the president, and I think a lot of them are going to vote for him, and you see that enthusiasm on the ground. Matt Maurer, thanks for your time. Senator Cotton, has he taken you to Poor Boy's Diner over here in Londonderry yet? Not yet, but we're going to go before I leave. Fantastic breakfast, man. Go check it out. So, Drew, what did you think? What did you think of what Senator Cotton had to say, particularly his comments about big tech and Section 230, which is the special protection that they have uh, from being treated like a traditional publisher? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, Senator Cotton is very um, smart and very articulate guy. Um, I, the Section 230 is one of those things where when both political parties agree that a business has to be heavily regulated, um, I think that should raise alarm bells. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, Joe Biden has said that it should be scrapped entirely. We should take it out of the law. Um, and it, this is from the Telecommunications Act of, what, 96. So it's a provision that allows um, – it allows internet providers – 
So companies like platforms like Facebook and, and Twitter, but also lots of other internet if you're a, a, a web page and you have people commenting on your web page, um, Reddit, you know, a bunch of places, the section two basically gives you some immunity if someone else on your platform says something defamatory, um, says something illegal, it doesn't count you liable for that. It says you're not a publisher of this content. You're just allowing people to say things on your site. And if you're not policing it, um, it's okay. But also, if you police it in good faith, you can still have immunity. And what that means is if um, you apply even-handed standards, if you in good faith try to um, control and create a civil forum and you miss something and somebody says something illegal or defamatory, as long as you're acting in good faith and you really tried hard, um, we recognize that you're not a publisher. You're still just a platform. So we won't hold you legally responsible for what other people say. Um, the jurisprudence on this is interesting because the law says you have to act in good faith, but the courts and Clarence Thomas wrote a really interesting piece on this this week saying, look, the courts have actually gotten the law wrong and have basically given blanket immunity for Section 230 when, in fact, there's a really important provision there and there that says you have to act in good faith. And I think that is something maybe to talk about. What does that mean? Because Twitter taking that New York Post story down um, and making the you know, claim that we're doing it because it was swiped or it didn't come from a legitimate source when they've allowed all sorts of other content that didn't come from legitimate sources or was you know, taken uh, in dubious means like the New York Times story on Trump's taxes, for example. I mean, it is a felony to reveal somebody's tax returns. <laughs> and so somebody committed a felony to create that story and Twitter let it happen and uh, didn't try to censor it. But um, the New York Post story, Hurdy Biden, they said, well, we're going to take that down. So um, there are some double standards there. And if they're not acting in good faith, then maybe there should be some um, their liability should not be total. So, um, you know, there is a provision there. I don't, I, I don't think necessarily, um, you know, taking Section 230 away is a good idea. For one thing. Um, well, let me stop you right there. It doesn't matter what we think. What matters is what the members of Congress think. And the number of people who are willing to stand up for free speech is shrinking all the time. And that what is. you had before is you had people on the right who were saying, look, I absolutely think it's obvious that Google, Facebook, and Twitter have a bias. You can see it from the way they handle content. You can see it from the fact that 90% or more of their political donations go to Democrats. But it's more important to stop the government regulation and pushing against those handful of Republicans were people on the left who have openly expressed their doubt about the free speech. New York Times just had a major uh, piece about why we're in the post First Amendment era. We just have to let the First Amendment go campus speech codes, et cetera. So there are people who don't agree that free speech unfettered is a fundamental good. And then you have people on the right who say, hey, this is an unfair, you know, unlevel playing field. Let's join with Senator um uh, what's his name from Missouri? Holly. Yeah, Holly. Josh Holly. And let's just, just let's just beat him in the. They're going to fight us. We'll fight them right back. And so this tiny shrinking number of small L liberals. How do you defend uh, the the platform when it shuts down a campaign's website? The president of the United States campaign website was shut down two weeks before an election over content. I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah, I think that's it. How do you defend yeah. it? I, well, 
Well, that, that's indefensible. And I think Twitter has hurt itself so badly. What they did with that New York Post um, story was basically potentially commit Harry Carey, right? So they have um, given their enemies more ammunition than they ever would have had otherwise. And um, so you can't blame, look, people on the right can see that um, Facebook and Twitter um, have, and, and YouTube and Google have been hostile. I mean, that's just undeniable. Um, but I'm skeptical of the idea that the answer is to give government power to regulate them because people are making that determination now as Trump is president and, and um, has the FCC appointees and all of that. Um, but Trump won't be in power forever. Um, people on your side, whatever side you're on, won't be in power forever. So you're giving, you're basically going to be giving the future AOCs of the world, or the future Elizabeth Warrens, uh, the power to regulate tech companies, but lots of other companies um, in ways that you can't even imagine, right? So you, it, I, I'm, I'm alarmed by that. But the idea that you have these powerful companies that are going to, um, that we're going to fix them by having the government control what they can and can't say or what can and can't allow people to say is just so obviously flawed <laughs> that I'm not sure a lot of the people advocating this have really thought it through. No, they haven't. And you would think they would learn a lesson from Harry Reid. When Harry Reid decided to invoke the nuclear option so that the Senate could change its rules with a simple majority vote, how, I mean, how much of what we've seen since then do you have to see to go, oh, crap, unintended consequences, or we're not always going to be in power. Learn the lesson. And I understand why Senator Cotton is frustrated. And I also know that his voters are frustrated and, you know, not saying that he is going to run for president, but it's not wildly out of the of the possibility. He sees a group of voters who are really mad. They feel like that the uh, big tech companies share the Hillary Clinton view of them as the deplorables and is going to shut down their conversations. And if you're trying to win a Republican primary, that's not necessarily a bad position to be in. Well, you know, it reminds me a lot of the arts debates in the 90s with Jesse Helms and not one to fund the National Endowment for the Arts and Maplethorpe and all that. You know, so you had, um, you know, taxpayer money going to fund defensive art and you had Jesse Helms up there railing against this and um, denouncing the artists. And a lot of people on the left were so mad at Jesse Helms. How, you know, why would what, we shouldn't have Jesse Helms, you know, having any say right. over what people, you know, <laughs> artists can do? Like, well, you gave him the exactly. say by making taxpayer funded. Just take the taxpayer funding part away uh, and Maplethorpe can say whatever he wants. Nobody cares what Maplethorpe does unless you force somebody else to pay for it. And this has a bit of a, so it's not exactly the same issue, but it has a bit of a similar feel to it because everybody's saying, well, you know, the real answer is to give the government power to regulate it. Well, really? You think that's not going to come back to bite you <laughs> in exactly. a couple of years when the other party has control of the government and gets to decide what tech companies can and can't say and can and can allow on their platforms? And, you know, I mean, as soon as a tech company says, well, we're going to allow um, liberal speech, but not conservative speech. Do you think, you know, President Warren is going to say that's wrong? <laughs> like, you think her FEC, FEC, right. FEC appointees are they're, they're going to love it. You just you shouldn't be giving the government that sort of power. Uh, let the company sort it out. 
and um, you know, let the marketplace figure it out. Well, That's I can't think of a better example of the need for government regulation of of uh, of uh, content than this podcast. I mean, really, the fact that this <laughs> is going to exist on the uh, public interwebs is really a problem. It is our attempt to try to help fill in some of the news and interview gap that's occurred because of the recent changes in local media here in New Hampshire. It's all about New Hampshire. And uh, so every day, check your email box. If you get the New Hampshire Journal newsletter, there'll be a link to the podcast. Uh, if you are a Josiah Bartlett Center follower, and you should be, you'll see it there. You'll see it on social media. You'll see it on the New Hampshire Journal Facebook page. And in a couple of days, because we kind of have started this out of the blocks drew we're going to be on itunes and google play and all that stuff too it just takes a few days to get that up and running so but we will be there and in the meantime if you want some good public policy content for new hampshire go to j bartlett two t's at the end dot org and it's dot org by the way j bartlett dot org Uh, he's drew klein i'm michael graham at nhjournal.com this is the nh journal podcast Brought to you by the Josiah Bartlett Center for Public Policy. Thanks for listening. Talk to you tomorrow.